Hello, this is Brendan Sinone with the Knowles 24-7 podcast, uh, second episode here. Thank you for all of you who uh, kind of weighed in and talked to us about the first episode. Still kind of working out some kinks, uh, some quality uh, components, but uh, actually to, to, to try to make the audio a little, better, a little bit better, I'm uh, here live in person with Chris Nee and Bob Ferrante, so we got the gang together for the podcast. It's a little different. You actually have to look at the, the people in the eyes when you talk to them, so I'm a little intimidated. Bob's giving me this this distant stare right now but uh anyways uh, thanks for for listening to this episode we're going to kind of try to weigh in on on a handful of topics uh, spring football is back after a 10-day hiatus for uh for spring break uh baseball uh some you know overall some some downtimes with florida state athletics with baseball a post-mortem for fsu uh, basketball as well and maybe guys that will be the the place where we start is fsu hoops which just uh just lost in the second round of the NCAA tournament to Xavier, uh, 91 to, to 66, and just not really a, a great end to the to the 2016-17 campaign. Five and five to, to end the season in its last ten games. Uh, you guys were both in Orlando, I guess. Uh, Bob, let's start with you. Your thoughts on on just what you took from the tournament and and just kind of what the the feeling from the fan base as the season is is over here. I think it was an underwhelming performance in Orlando where you saw, you know, Florida State really go up-tempo in a track meet with Florida Gulf Coast and, and kind of survive an upset-minded, lower-seeded opponent. And Florida State clearly had the athleticism and the depth to uh, to withstand an upset there. And then, you know, as we know, it's it's a matchup deal in the NCAA tournament. Second round, tight turnaround. You're, you're finishing up a game at, say, midnight, uh, early Friday morning. you got to start game planning. Uh, Charlton Young was the assistant coach responsible for preparing the team for Xavier, and, and I think they, they they saw a lot of, of, uh, of zone and, and half court sets on offense they were going to have to prepare for. But really, in the end, you know, from from the opening tip, I didn't think Florida State looked really good at all. You kind of had this feel that they were not they were not in sync and rhythm. The three pointers were obviously not falling one for eight in the first half. It just looked like a team that. I think they had energy. I think they were trying, but you know they they couldn't penetrate that zone. And, and FSU's forced to shoot three pointers to win. And as we've kind of seen, that's just not a good formula for them at all. In basketball, and you kind of hear this, it is cliche all about matchups. And when you talk about a team like Xavier that wants to kind of slow things down and and kind of muck it up a little bit with the the zone defenses, like you said, Bob, that doesn't really play to what Florida State wants to do. Now, if Florida State's making those threes, um, then that changes the the complexion of the game you're able to get in your full court defense that's just not what Florida State was able to do and conversely um, Xavier makes its threes and is able to set up in its defense so just kind of a worst case scenario I guess Chris what were your takeaways from from that final game and um, I guess maybe you're you're plugged into the fan base just how are how just seems like a lot of negativity surrounding is that is that fair to say surrounding the program right now yeah, starting with the final game, I mean, uh, you know, the offense for FSU wasn't very good. They weren't very efficient, but truthfully, the defense was putrid. Xavier picked on them. Xavier runs a lot of set plays, and, you know, for the first 10, 12 minutes of that game, they pretty much got what they wanted, kind of built a lead. And as we've seen in the tournament, not a whole lot of teams can dig out of a 10-point hole. Um, so I think that's something that really hurt FSU. I think FSU kind of was surprised by how a team that wasn't super athletic in Xavier could really pick on a team that's pretty long and athletic in Florida State, but they did it routinely. You know, they ran three set plays in about a three-minute span that were the exact same play. They ran two to the same corner and then one to the opposite corner, but it was the same play reversed. And they got three easy lay-ins. I think one was a dunk and two were lay-ins where it was a feed to the corner and then a feed to the post, easy to put down. You know, you watch that and you just kind of know it's not going to be tonight unless FSU gets hot from the outside, and they haven't really done that in the back half of the season the last ten games. You know, they've struggled to get going from the perimeter. The whole season, I think it's kind of weird. You know, I think going into the year, most people didn't expect a whole lot from FSU basketball. Then they had that great stretch in January. They're 18-2. and two. People were kind of jumping on the bandwagon, loving it, enjoying it, thinking they have a shot of doing something. Then they go 8-7 and seven in their last 15 games or exiting the NCAA tournament in the second round. And it's kind of, you know, you realize what the ceiling is for FSU basketball under Leonard Hamilton. And I think... You know, there's a healthy amount of the fan base that's just kind of tired of watching the same product we've now seen for 15 years. We just watched two guys that are, you know, surefire pros come through here in Isaac and Bacon. And, you know, 
we got a NCAA tournament second round exit out of it. That might be the best we get. You know, Ham's been here 15 years. I think there's just reached a point where no matter what he does, barring a run to, you know, that last weekend in the NCAA tournament, people just don't care. They've kind of checked out on it. And after four years of relatively mediocrity, this was, uh, you know, it, it was a nice breath of fresh air, I guess is the best way of putting it, after uh, four years of mediocrity. But it ended kind of, you know, abruptly with a blowout loss. And I don't know, I think in general people are frustrated by FSU basketball. The the fan base is relatively apathetic towards the sports. Let's not fool ourselves. It's not yeah. it's not FSU football, you know, at this point. Or baseball. Would, or baseball. A guy wouldn't have 15 years here with the results that they've seen here if people truly cared and put their money into it and had a voice in what the basketball program does. But I think in general, that apathy is kind of now, it is what it is. That is what the FSU basketball program is. I I don't look at FSU basketball expecting next year to be bigger and better. You know, I expect next year to be a step back, especially if a few guys leave as expected. And well, you know, be, it before, is what it is. Before the, we go to the future, maybe, like, let's, I guess I want to go macro, but but first micro, like, let's just, in one Yes or no? Was the season a success or a failure? Just one, then we can elaborate. But like, yeah, I, I say yes. I think it was a success based on preseason expectations. Uh, Bob, guess what? Did, yes or no? Success or not a success? If I can go yes with an asterisk, <laughs> that, that it did really underwhelm down the stretch. Sure, it it did. I would say overall, yeah, I'll, I'll go with a yes. But uh, it didn't it didn't leave you with that glass half full feeling. It kind of left you. It was unsatisfying at the end, Chris. I'm going with a yes because I'm completely comfortable with knowing what FSU basketball <laughs> is, and this is about as good as it gets, you know. I didn't expect them to get anywhere beyond the Sweet 16. I thought Arizona would whoop them if they made it to that point. Mm-hmm. So they ended up one game short of what I expected, and that's my adjusted ex- expectations mm-hmm. after a really hot start to the season. Walking in the season, I thought they were a bubble team that would get in the NCAA tournament. So it's a yes. So, so then let's go to, to macro, and I think – you know, we talked about this before, uh, and you've written about it and stuff. Going into this season, you know, when they talk about Leonard Hamilton and the the contract extension, I put that in, in quotes because it's a little murky at this point. But or uh, sham. Well, I'll say this: I, <laughs> I I thought that Leonard Hamilton, at least I wanted to see, deserved. I don't want to say deserved this season. I thought that he at least had a. You want to see what he could do with. Jonathan Isaac with another year of Dwayne Bacon because having him was kind of the linchpin to having those guys and and at least seeing what you can do with two you know potential lottery players on the same roster um you know plus with all the other guys they'd brought in and this is it and like Chris said I think that this is kind of the cap so uh to, to me I, I guess in that sense when you start looking at big picture uh Chris like where where does Florida State go from here and kind of to talk about the macro like of of is this as good as it gets for Florida State and if so is is that acceptable given the 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 uptake and I guess resources that's gone into the school and the program the last couple of years. Well, it's a two sided coin. I think this is as good as it gets under Leonard Hamilton. I also think Leonard Hamilton and FSU basketball in its current state is sort of what's expected from the administration, from the school, from the support that the program gets. You know, if people want FSU basketball to be a better product, if they want to be more into it, they need to support it better, both financially and with fans showing up to games. You know, attendance this year upticked by. I think it was like 12%. Capacity was about 75%. The fan base just isn't super into FSU basketball. They never have been. I don't think they have been in 20-plus years now, um, dating back to pre-Steve Robinson days. So I'm not going to sit here and act like FSU basketball should be competing with Blue Bloods because it's not a program that acts like a Blue Blood. But I also feel like FSU basketball can be more. They're in a great conference. It's in a state that has good talent, that's attractive to talent. You know, I don't think it's super difficult to put together a real good starting fives in college basketball. And building depth is probably the task that sets apart teams that are going to make a run and not make a run. And FSU can do it. I don't think they can do it under Leonard Hamilton. But I'm also realistic that if you move on from Leonard Hamilton, the grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side. You can just as quickly become Boston College and be putrid. There is something, I don't want to say reassuring, but you do know, know, know that Leonard Hamilton teams are not going to be awful at, right. at any point. Um, They're mediocre to pretty good. Yeah. yeah and, and I don't know, for me it's tough with, with hoops because it's such a small sample size when you get into the NCAA tournament. You know, So if, you, if you're Florida State and say you shoot you know, marginally well, say you shoot 35% from beyond the arc, and, and I keep saying Xavier because I'm used to saying Xavier Rathen. So Xavier shoot, shoots not well. What did they finish 
Yeah, they were up like in the first half, like sixty percent at one point, right? I think From it was being eleven to seventeen, it was somewhere around sixty-six. Uh, they game. they shot basically twice their average percentage for the season. Have we done I that? Think, I think they were the second worst three-point shooting team during <laughs> the NCAA tournament. So that's it's like you know you mentioned like the, the game plans and, and exactly like there's only so much that you can do, right? If you're you're putting in a game plan and a team goes and gets hot, and that's just not an indicative like of of what Florida State was. But I, I think to me, more damning was was Florida State going five and five to finish its last ten games. It wasn't that you lose and you lose in bad fashion that's what we kind of talked about in the podcast last week is it kind of depends on how they lose and how you feel about the season uh, but ultimately I think it's just just kind of how they kind of you know fell off and I wonder uh, I mean is there a reason to be optimistic like about what you think let's assume that Dwayne Bacon probably not coming back Jonathan Isaac probably not coming back uh, XRM maybe I'm not sure yeah how, how, what yeah, I could see both both sides for him uh, I mean, do you think that at least what this, this roster is next year, there is reason to think it could be a tournament team again and, and maybe you know, kind of get to a similar point with, with what the guys that they do have projected to come back? Uh, do, you, do you kind of see that for next year? Yeah, I think it's going to be tough. It's, it's really going to depend on, on the recruiting classes, and, and you know, Chris is closer to that than, than I am. But I think at this point it's, it's key to, as crazy as it is to say it, XRM almost has to come back to kind of <laughs> – give them a little bit of stability and, and a defensive-minded point guard. And a year ago, I didn't think I would say something like that, but I've I've kind of shifted. I think his personality and mentality and attitude has shifted. Um, this is a really good, young, talented team, I think, at the guard position. Mm-hmm. They're more guard-heavy and guard-talented, I feel. Um, everybody likes to talk about how long and, you know, they're big in the post, but the post wasn't the strength of this team. And I think now moving forward, you look at guards like C.J. Walker and Trent Forrest, who can be really dynamic with the ball driving mm-hmm. and shooting from outside. You know, Savoy looks like, you know, he can only only improve as a three-point shooter, maybe, you know, uptick that percentage and, and improve his all-around game. So mm-hmm. he can actually be on the court as a defender and not be maybe a defensive liability. So I think you've got so many good young guards that – you, know, you almost have to go away from that that big man lineup and, and try to go a little smaller, mm-hmm. mix in Terrence Mann at the four. But in the end, are they going to be a tournament team? It, it really, we have to see how the roster shakes out. You know, Chris, do they bring in you know, Walker, Knox? I think we have a lot of pieces that in the next couple of months will kind of help to formulate what we're going to see out of this team next year. Yeah, I, I you know, if I was betting right now, presuming – the big three don't come back. I don't think they're a tournament team. That's you got to replace fifty about fifty five percent of your production right there. Um, you know I, the thing that they need to get back to is they they've made a departure the last couple of years from being a defensive team to a very good offensive team. And it's a much better product. It's much more enjoyable. But for them to be good next year, they're going to have to be, have to be a good defensive team. They're going to have to stop the ball. They're going to have to prevent wide open three point looks. They're going to have to prevent the dribble penetration that killed them at times. You know, Notre Dame picked on them more than anybody this year with Farrell's ability to dribble, penetrate, kick, and knock down shots. Um, they're going to have to get back to being a junkyard dog team, and they have to be that team beginning to end, game to game, whole season. This year they had times where they were excellent defensively, and they had other times where they were a complete sieve. So, you know, they have to get back to somewhere in the middle where they're a better defensive team. But I just I don't have optimism with the roster that they return and the incoming talent as it stands right now that they're going to just automatically be a tournament team. The, the conference is always deep. You know, they could sneak in as a bubble team, you know, 7, 8, 9 team in the league to get in if it's another big year for the league getting, you know, 8 to 9 teams. But I just don't feel optimistic that they're going to be a top-half team in the league next year. All right, so yes or no, should Leonard Hamilton be back next year, Bob? I'm just messing with you. You don't have to answer yes or no. But is there – so no, so are they reevaluating? Are they now with, with where we are as of today as we're filming this or recording this on, on Tuesday uh, here, here in late March? Um, where do you guys think Florida State goes from here? Are they evaluating or reevaluating – where Leonard Hamilton is. Is there a contract extension? Is he the guy for the future? I guess where is this program going as of now? I think given the administration that's currently in place, these are men in, in Stan Wilcox and Carl Hicks who have known Leonard Hamilton for years. Um, this is a, a deal that we firmly expect will get done. How long will the extension be? It's a significant question mark at this point. Um, 
I, one thing I would just emphasize is, again, this was a contract extension that was announced in February 2016. It was supposed to be for two years, despite all of our public records requests by Knowles 247 and other groups. Um, that contract extension was never provided to us, um, even though we were led to believe that, that something was in place that both sides, being Hamilton and FSU, were, were okay with the framework of the deal. For whatever reason, it, it never got signed. So, again, literally Hamilton is under contract through the end of April 2017. As hard as that is to believe, <laughs> this was a contract year for an established head coach. And now it's it's really a bizarre situation. I do feel like it's going to get done. I, I just feel like, again, in a situation where you're looking at other coaches out there, are you going to find somebody better? And I, I just I don't know if, if you can. Chris? I think he'll get a new contract. I think he'll be around three years. You know, I think he'll probably take him through 2020 season, the end of the 2019-20 season. Um, you kind of have to do that from a recruiting standpoint. You're not going to part ways with a guy after he takes you to the NCAA tournament. You need to stop by him when he didn't take you to the NCAA tournament. Um, they've put themselves in a catch-22 situation. You know, if they want to move on, last year was a window. They didn't do so. They stuck with him. It paid off with a tournament run. But I don't feel like they're primed for future runs right now. I don't feel like, oh, this was the beginning of something really special in the next two to three years. Unless a guy like Jonathan Isaac or Dwayne Bacon's on that court next year, I don't feel real optimistic about that next year. Um, the whole contract situation as it stands right now, it's kind of aggravating. There's a lack of transparency by the administration. It's created confusion. And, you know, that contract extension last year, the only way I can put it is that it comes off as a sham with the mm-hmm. fact that we've never seen an actual sheet of paper explaining what it was, who signed it, who agreed to it. We saw quotes from Stan Wilcox, John Thrasher. Obviously, Leonard commented on it, but that's the extent of what actually was done with that contract. It was never, to our knowledge, to our ability to see, actually put in writing. So, you know, that's disappointing. But I do expect them to get a new contract. You know, when the time comes, obviously Leonard's getting up in age. They're going to have to make a change in the coming years, whether that's four years, five years further down the road. When the time comes, it's going to be very interesting to see just how dedicated Stan Wilcox and the administration around him that he's put on top of basketball is to making this into a product that's going to, you know, elevate to another level to be a different program. Are we going to kind of stick with what we're willing to be right now, which is tournament every few years pretty satisfied with that make a run in the ACC here and there pretty satisfied with that or is it a goal of being really good year in year out or every two years and competing at a really high level you know people always say that Florida state of Florida schools the big three don't want to be basketball schools but we've certainly seen with Florida that you can pretty consistently be a basketball school and make the commitment to being that kind of product you know Mike White's a guy that came in already found a great deal of success Mm so uh, it's going to be interesting when the time comes for the next step of FSU basketball from a coaching standpoint but that time's not coming in the immediate future we're at least two years out and FSU would have to be really bad for two years or Leonard Hamilton would have to decide to retire in two years for that window to even exist and and I I do think one takeaway from this season as we kind of finish off the the post-mortem here on basketball is I mean, there is, you know, Chris, you mentioned the the crowd and the audience of, of you know, fans this year, and, and the tenants certainly was up, uh, and I thought the student section really came out, and it showed that if, if there is a good product on the court, not even a great one, but a good, exciting one, and I mean, they were great at home, I mean, they, they did go undefeated, uh, so as far as, you know, students are concerned, it was a great product and something fun to go to, uh, they will show up, uh, at least to an extent, so, so you know, the myth of a football school versus basketball school, Hamilton's talked about that. There's certainly a, um, there's certainly a market for basketball in Tallahassee at Florida state. And I think the administration has at least shown that it's willing to make strides to improve that. Now, just yeah. how much, how much further they're willing to go, uh, and what's acceptable as far as a cap on the program or not. I think that's kind of where we're, those are questions I guess that are unknown as, as we kind of look in the next couple of years here. Yeah. I think the main thing I'd say about that is Tallahassee lacks a general fervor for FSU basketball. Mm-hmm. It doesn't create a ton of buzz, even when they were really good early this year. That's about as high as I've seen it in the 15 years under him. 
and it was good, but it wasn't great. It's not like coming off a football victory where everybody's talking about the next day. You know, you heard some of it on sports talk radio. There was some talk here and there. Attendance at the next game was a slight tick up. But there wasn't this insane, oh, my God, we got a great product competing for the ACC. Let's pack that place and completely sell it out every single game. That just didn't exist. They sold out three or four home games this year, which is good. It's better. It's an improvement. But there's just not insane fervor. And I would contribute some of that to something that I know me and Bob have talked about many times. Leonard doesn't do a great job of kind of endearing himself to the community. He's not exactly the guy that's going to go out and campaign for you to come to his basketball games. And I I get it. It's not who he is. He wants to coach games, wants to win games, and believes it will take care of himself. But at some point, you know, you need a little Bruce Pearl to kind of step out of his body and do a little something of that. You know, he's probably a better coach than Bruce, but whatever. And some of it's optics, too. I mean, the junkyard dog defense that we'd seen – you know, for t- for ten years, or not in the last couple of years, though, uh, you know, obviously doesn't lend itself to a lot of excitement and right. buzz, like you said. And and listen, I mean, this year's team was fun to watch. It was fun to cover. Uh, we saw a lot of cool things. I mean, you saw a guy like Jonathan Isaac, and listen, he's not Kevin Durant, which is kind of what he was billed as by some coming in, but he does does a lot of things at a really high level. And uh, you know, so it, it was a fun season to cover. But uh, I think all of us kind of agree here is that it was you know. A good season. It was a step forward for the program, uh, but the kind of the way it ended, uh, not just with the last game, but the last ten games or so, kind of leaves you wondering, I guess, you know, what the cap, what the ceiling is. So, anyways, that, that's our our basketball post mortem. Let's move on to something a little bit more uh, fun, which is baseball. Which how about how about that baseball team right now, huh? Uh, you guys, I'll let you run it, run with baseball. You're kind of the baseball aficionados here. Uh, f- have dropped what four out of their last five, and including. Uh, a 17-0 loss this past weekend, which is the worst shutout in Florida State history. So, Bobo, what do you uh, what do you think is kind of up with baseball right now? And is this really, I mean, is this kind of the ebbs and flows of baseball season, or is there a legitimate reason to kind of be concerned uh, about the direction of, of the team right now? I, I want to get one zinger in to start. This is the best the Bud Foster defense has looked in a long time. So let's, <laughs> hey, let's yo. There. You know, it's a month in, and to a certain extent, I want to say, you know, major league baseball teams get a month of spring training. College baseball, you basically get inter-squad games with, you know, with teammates for what two, three, maybe four weeks. I don't know. It's. I think what is frustrating is yeah, there's a lot of losses. They're piling up against two of the worst. Uh, what's one of the worst teams in the ACC in, in Virginia Tech, and and I think you know an opening day loss. There's there's the midweek losses. Yeah, there's a lot of room for concern. The bullpen has been really inconsistent. Looking back at some of the, the the numbers, the relievers I think had seven straight games where they only gave up one earned run for one stretch in early March. You know, really good. And then this weekend it all kind of fell apart. You know, 17 earned runs in in 10 plus innings. So a lot of concerns about the bullpen. A lot of concerns about the lineup. You, you can't go up to Virginia Tech and produce. I think what was it, five singles? That's just that's just garbage. So. There are even questions about the rotation and, and who should be the ace and who should be the number two and three. I think we're just seeing a team really in flux, and, and they got to start figuring some things out. I, I would say it's early, but this maybe isn't the team that's definitely going to go to the College World Series. It's, it's definitely not one of the best eight teams right now in college baseball. My biggest thing is Mike Bell was hired in June of 2011 to fix pitching. And- <laughs> Here we sit in, you know, 2017. I'm not really sure pitching's been fixed all these last few years. The middle relief, as Bob mentioned, had a very good stretch to start the month of March. That went to hell at Virginia Tech. They were god-awful. You know, every time they went to relief, suddenly the scoreboard was putting double digits up in an inning, it seemed like. So that's not exactly a good sign. They also struggled some before the uh, pitching change with Drew Carlton to the bullpen all that in late February. So... The middle relief's been pretty awful. Jim Voyles, Alec Bird, uh, I don't want to include Haney in the group, but those two were guys that were super reliable last year. They've been nothing but not reliable this year, or everything. They've not been reliable this year. Um, when you don't know how to bridge your starters that you're going to consistently throw five, maybe six innings to a guy who you feel confident in as a closer in the ninth and Drew Carlton or even in the eighth, when you don't know who you're going to go to for that inning, two innings, three innings, you know, what are you going to do? 
If you're Mike Martin, senior, junior, Mike Bell sitting there trying to make that decision right now, who do you turn to and go, we have to protect a one-run lead for three innings to get to our closer? Who are we going to turn to? I don't know if they have a definitive answer for that. I think Chase Haney might be the closest thing to that. Beyond him, nobody's really set themselves apart as a guy they can go to who can eat a couple innings or even just get the out when you have to have the out. They haven't had that. The bats, you know, FSU baseball bats over the last several years, they run hot, they run cold. It's kind of a normal thing for them. Virginia Tech was an especially bad week for them at the plate. Um, It capped off an especially bad week for them at the plate. I think getting Jackson back in the lineup, eventually getting Drew Mendoza in the lineup, I think that will help some of that. You know, a guy like Taylor Walls will probably bat better than he has so far this year. He's done a very good job getting on base, but he hasn't done a great job of hitting the ball. Um, Tyler Daughtry's in that same boat. He's done an excellent job of getting on base. Hitting-wise, he is what he is. So I think they'll be better offensively, but the pitching is what makes me hesitate on believing they can do anything in the postseason. I just don't – at this point, I don't feel confident that they have anybody they can turn to when they pull a starter and feel like this guy can buy us an inning or two to get to Drew Carlton. You know, know, maybe some guys figure it out. Maybe they move a guy like Carp, who's a midweek strong starter, into that middle rotation. Maybe they switch around a guy like Carp and Parrish and move Parrish to that middle of the uh, rotation. But at this point, I think I'm searching for answers, and I think they are too. And I, I just don't know if the pitching has progressed as we expected when that move was made from Shoop to Bell. You know, I feel like consistently over the last several seasons we had different questions about pitching. Last year it was closer. This year it's middle relief, for example. Chris's body language when when he said the name Mike Bell <laughs> the shift the shift. I, I like Mike Bell actually I I think I I don't I think Mike Bell knows what he's doing I think he's done a good job with some guys I think there's clear instances you can point to where he's developed guys but in general I don't feel like FSU's pitching staff for what it was supposed to be this year as a strength is anywhere near that. So one one thing like when you're trying to you're talking about figuring out with the base you know, with the rotation and stuff uh, how you kind of work that in a little bit i know a lot of like mlb teams have kind of not a lot but some kind of start experimenting like instead of having their closers go out in the ninth inning kind of throw them out in the seventh or eighth or the higher quality guys in the bullpen and fsu baseball has shown you know willingness to kind of adapt and take on some of those metrics more so than i think a lot of other programs or at least quicker than, than college programs do you think that's something that they would consider maybe put like carlton out you know earlier i mean i'm just trying well, to think of, of how you kind of fix that that was just just a sieve right now in the middle of the we, ball we've, games we've seen a couple instances of carlton coming out you know getting six outs things of that sort mm-hmm. um you can get away with that some but at some point you got to find you know at least three four guys that you can rely on because you're going to have a game where holton or sands or carp or parish whoever it is starting is going to get in trouble in the third or fourth and if FSU has to currently rely on that middle relief that they have to bridge, you know, the fourth to the eighth inning to get to Drew, mm-hmm. you know, right now it's it's kind of batting practice with that yeah. group. They're not exactly uh, tearing it up. It's not sustainable. Um, it's not a sustainable formula for success for sure. Uh, but you know, it is baseball, and Bob, you kind of alluded to it earlier. This is. You know, still early in the season, still trying to find identity. I mean, is there any? I mean, do you think it's reason for concern, or is it just kind of a group kind of? We saw this sometimes in the last couple of years where they kind of struggle for, for you know, periods of time and then figure it out. Man, so I don't know whether this is just you know, bad stretch in baseball or if these are actually really glaring warts that, that can't be fixed currently. Uh, I guess what are your thoughts on, I guess, where the, where the team goes uh, from here after kind of a rough last week or so? Yeah, I talked with Mike Martin briefly yesterday, and he's, he's clearly frustrated with what's going on. Obviously, every coach would be. I think to emphasize at the moment they're not going to make any major changes. The rotation is going to stay the way it is uh, for the weekend series up at Notre Dame. Carp is on the mound tonight for, for Jacksonville. I think where he is kind of examining potential changes would be in the bullpen. You know, one of the interesting things he mentioned was you know they always had a guy they could count on in the bullpen, a guy like uh, Dylan Silva a couple years ago who kind of cut on that moniker of everyday Dylan because he just had a rubber arm could come out and just pitch as often as needed it seemed like and and last year you know the Voiles brothers seemed to be those guys so and Martin kind of said you know he just doesn't know who that guy is in that certain situation is right now and and so they're kind of feeling it out and and maybe that's gonna just progress in the next couple weeks 
I, I kind of think, though, by April 1, maybe a few games into April, they're going to have to really make some hard decisions as to, okay, who do we run with the last two months of the season? Who do we have confidence in? Where do they best get slotted? And, and just because in the end, the key is you've got to try to host a super regional so you're not matched up with Florida. <laughs> I think in the end, that's, that's yeah. the goal. As much as trying to get to Omaha, it's FSU doesn't want to play Florida, doesn't want to be in Gainesville, mm-hmm. period. Yeah, and and there's still time to kind of, like you said, there, there's time to figure things out. So I don't think you hit the panic button right. just yet. I mean, the team was ranked number one. You yeah, know, but that, that was absurd. <laughs> they should have never been ranked number one. They're not even the best team in the conference. Louisville has clearly, through the first 20 or so games of the season, been the best team in the ACC. Mm-hmm. They're undefeated for a reason. Their schedule is not exactly murderer's row. But FSU's also lost to a lot of teams that aren't very good. Ranking them number one, I love Kendall and the guys at D1. I'm not going to knock them, but it was stupid. It was it was literally not putting any thought into what you were doing. I don't know how you rank a team that's not the best team in the league, number one in the nation. I just When I was writing that bold a week ago, I thought it was insane. So there we go. Mike Bell, D1 baseball, just added to Chris Knee's uh, list. List here of, of just emphatic body language topics. Well, <laughs> I mean, it is what. So, big picture, like baseball, not a great, not a great week. Uh, kind of coinciding with with basketball, not a great you know, week for yeah. FSU athletics. Let's transition to actually something kind of exciting. Is, is FSU uh, football returned to uh, to practice field after a ten day hiatus from spring break, which just. Jimbo always complains whenever that does kind of it's happened previous years right hasn't that happened before I think because now the school tries to coincide uh spring break with with Tallahassee's you know public school systems and 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 whatnot so it's weird you have practice for three days and all of a sudden you uh you have a 10-day break and then you have to just go right back into the swing of things so so FSU returned to practice field on um on Monday and they they did hit the ground running they were in uh they're in half shells right but I'm trying to remember they're in half shells they had a you know, doing in more installation, doing red zone stuff, which Jimbo Fisher loves loves talking about red zone, and they usually have been pretty good uh, in that category. So uh, they returned. Uh, you know, Bobby were there talking Jimbo. Just kind of, I don't know. I'm always kind of big on Jimbo's demeanor and when little things that he says, the things he doesn't say. I guess what stood out to you during you know the the post Monday availability and and I guess where where he thinks this this team is uh, coming off of the break. I think Jimbo was a little bit frustrated just having the break, yes. and, and he felt like you know it was the first practice back. It, it definitely it's had, asinine had to a, have the break, but inconsistent yeah. feel to it. Um, I, I think he he felt like the schedule had to play out this way, where he had to have a break in the middle. Um, definitely not ideal, but you know for them to be working on red zone and giving some young running backs some opportunities mm-hmm. in you know say third and goal situations and such. You know who can you count on on the goal line? Because now you don't have Freddie Stevenson and Dalvin Cook. So you have to see, is that guy going to be Jaquez Patrick? Is it going to be Cam Akers? Um, who's your jumbo DeMarcus Walker type? Is that going to be a Fred Jones? Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see who, what kind of personnel he puts in in that situation. Um, the other thing that he, he talked a lot about, the linebackers, I think yeah. um, there seems to be a good amount of confidence in some of the younger guys. Uh, Derek Hoskins really praised Ontavius Jackson. Mm-hmm. Uh, how smart he is, how quickly he's progressing. Um, I, another interesting fact that Jimbo kind of, I didn't you know, pick up on this in the recruiting process, but Jimbo mentioning Adonis Thomas, you know, basically played in a JUCO defense, very similar to Florida State. Mm-hmm. So his, his learning curve has kind of been easier as far as transitioning from, from JUCO to sophomore season now. So I think we're seeing some of these younger guys, we're going to get some opportunities. I don't think they're going to start. Uh, I don't think that's maybe you know fair to say Adonis Thomas is going to fight for a starting job, but a guy who can give you some quality reps as a backup this season. Well, the line, I think that the linebackers are a good topic to kind of go on because that was uh, one of the many sources of angst last year from the fan base when talking about the Florida State defense was was Matthew Thomas and Roderick Hoskins at least that first half of the season against the you know the spread option uh teams with with you know good quarterbacks they looked very tentative and did not look comfortable in in their new roles you know those i think that's something you have to remember is that those guys were both full-time starters really for the first time in, in their respective careers and and playing in roles that they weren't really used to and, and there is somewhat of a learning process but it shouldn't produce those disastrous on-field results 
Uh, but I thought they looked a lot better um, at the end of, of the season. I understand that they didn't play against the caliber quarterback they did the first half of the year. There's certainly some of that. But you just see the way they respond uh, instinctively was different. Uh, the optics were just so much better the way those two guys were were playing. Uh, do you guys, I mean, is there like the legitimate, do you think that there's a reason to be optimistic about the linebackers with, if you go into the season with a Matthew Thomas and a Roderick Hoskins starting? Yeah. I think Matthew Thomas is a guy that we saw it in the Orange Bowl. He's capable of being a dominant player. Mm-hmm. Um, he needs to be that more consistently than we saw a season ago. But a season ago was basically for him a second freshman season. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how he does this year. Uh, with Hoskins, I think he took on a lot of responsibility last year and honestly struggled with it early on. He seemed to be a lot more comfortable on the back end. Plus, you know, having Emmett Rice, Adonis Thomas, uh, Dontavious Jackson behind you to push you. Or replace you if need be. You know, those are three guys you can rely on now. I think those guys, outside of Adonis, are very well-versed in the system. I think Thomas is a guy, just knowing him a little bit, pretty intelligent guy. I think he'll pick up on it relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Kind of saves you from having to turn to a guy like Nick Patty a few games into the season early on. You know, you're going to be able to leave high-end athletic ability on the field instead of parting it for a guy that understands it better. You know, you don't have to yeah. do that like they did last year. And, yeah, I, I'm not trying to pick on Nick Patty, but when they went to Nick Patty in game, teams picked pick on, on Nick Patty because immediately he doesn't match up exactly perfectly to a lot of guys like an Eric Ebron and those types. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, or, I'm sorry, not Eric Ebron. Uh, Ingram, Ingram, yeah. Um, so, you know, it, I think they don't have to worry about that this year. So I think just if you're comparing, you know, last year to this year simply, you should see an uptick in that position. When was the last time – the depth, and we, a lot of times we'll say depth, and, and I think I make this mistake a lot, is I'll confuse just having bodies there, scholarship guys as having depth. But but I actually think there's quality depth. I yeah. think you, you guys have both mentioned Dontavious Jackson. He's someone that legitimately can push Roderick Hoskins, and if, if they decide to make a switch or if Roderick Hoskins has to go out, there's not a, a substantial drop-off. In fact, I think you know, Dontavious does some things better. He's a little more instinctive. More of a gap fill. Yeah, exactly, more of that thumper, that prototypical – Mac linebacker, uh, although when Roderick's right, he's really good. It's just more when he's confident. But, so, I mean, there's bodies there. There's Emmett Rice. Uh, you guys have both mentioned Adonis Thomas as someone that the staff likes. Can you remember the last time that there was this kind of – and then even you go to the Sam linebackers with, like, Jacob Hugh and Josh Brown. They have, you know, guys to rotate in. Can you remember the last time that they've had this sort of confidence, you know, in an off season heading into a season at, at the linebacker? I just can't think of one since I've been covering the team since 2013. Like, even that group – was Telvin Smith and Terrence Smith had to kind of come in and Christian Jones gets moved to defensive end. Yeah, it feels like it's been a few years. I think that championship year they did kind of find certain bodies worked in, in certain positions really well. Like Christian Jones was a need to come off the edge and and that was that was the year Telvin really broke out and we saw, you know, everything that he could do, even though he was what, two hundred and twenty pounds mm-hmm. maybe. You know, he, he played like he was bigger and he, he was fast and he could range. So yeah, I, I feel much more confident about this group from a number standpoint, from an experience standpoint. It was great to see a guy like Dontavis Jackson get experience last year, not just with a start against Wake, but just to see him get that second half of the season. Mm-hmm. You know, How many guys have we said that? The, the true freshmen, they start to get it maybe early to mid-October, and then we see them much more October, November, and into mm-hmm. late in the year. So you have to feel better about the group. I think my only concern with the linebackers still is they move up and they move side to side well. Mm-hmm. How how good are they going to be when asked to go into coverage? Um, and maybe that's maybe that's just where I don't need to worry about it and just think that the nickel package of, of defensive backs, that's going to be more of their forte. But I, I do still worry about this group of linebackers in coverage. Well, I think the biggest thing helping this group of linebackers, and I think it's a good group, but you know, depth is definitely better. The versatility is certainly there. They have a lot of different bodies, a lot of different styles, so they can kind of throw different things at teams. But Derwin James is back, and I know he's listed as a safety all that, but Derwin James does a little bit of everything on defense, and he's a guy, because of what he can do and the kind of curveballs he can throw at opposing teams, he helps a group like the linebackers by creating indecision on the offensive end, it benefits a group that's kind of playing in the middle of the field. You know, bad decisions are made, balls thrown into a tight space, not thrown well enough, ooh, look, linebacker underneath, he gets a ball. Or, you know, the linebackers plug a hole, but the running back pops to the outside and the end is contained. Oh, look, Derwin James barrels down and makes a play off the edge. 
you know, I think that's an area that's going to help those linebackers a lot. And when you put them into that whole group of the 11 on defense with a guy like Derwin and a guy like Nate Andrews, who's extremely experienced in a money role, which is basically a linebacker spot too, you know, they've got help. And last year, I think at times when they got picked on, it's because the help behind them was inexperienced, didn't know what they were doing, was learning on the fly, and it made them look even worse than just them not making a great play on that instance. You mentioned Nate Andrews, too, and that's a guy, you know, I think we've, we've all taken turns writing about in the past, you know, um, you know, since last season. His value to this team, I'm really surprised, and maybe kind of we talked about it before, like a vocal, min- vocal minority, excuse me, but um, I guess I'm surprised that there's not more excitement for him coming back. I get he's not a great, you know, uh, high safety and doesn't do all the things you want, you know, playing you know, with range and, and stuff like that, but man, like a, a guy that that has uh, that's a link to that 2013 championship team that played a decent sized role in that dime package and and is a really really good sub package like linebacker uh, and in that money role that hybrid like I, I just don't understand why there's not actual genuine excitement to have to have him back is it because they have other guys that they think they can do something else like I, I think that Nate's a, a big time player for them in this defense this year I think the biggest benefit of having Nate is when things are going bad and that player comes to the sideline and gets torn a yeah. new one by Jimbo or Charles or whoever tears into him, Nate can walk over there and talk to that young man and explain what needs to be explained. And when it's your peer talking to you, it's a lot easier to listen than when it's somebody that's kind of yelling at you because, hey, I taught you this 25 times in practice and you just did it wrong. So I think Nate's value is truthfully more so on the sideline in that sense than even on the field. But on the field, he's a cool, calm customer who completely understands everything they're trying to do. I think the reason that fans don't necessarily love him in some ways is just he's not uber athletic. He's not super flashy. You know, freshman year, he made a lot of plays, but it seemed like he was in the right place, right time. It wasn't necessarily the athleticism taking over. And I think they look at some of the talent around him and think, oh, these guys are superior to him in an athletic standpoint. Therefore, they should play over him. I hope he doesn't steal reps. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think Nate's an in-between guy. I think he's a guy that's going to help you be better because he completely understands what it takes to be good. I don't think he's necessarily the guy that puts you over the top because he's such a superb football player. I agree. I mean, he's not he's not a uh, he's not an elite defender, but what he does, he does very very well. And there's certainly something to be said for that. I mean, there's guys in the NFL getting drafted uh, partially because they can be you know sub package players now. I and mean, there's there's just that's just how football and defense is going. Is where a guy like that can be valuable. Uh, now shifting, you know, staying staying on defense, but kind of shifting down the line a little bit. We got a chance to talk to Josh Sweat. Uh, yesterday, or I guess Monday, uh, and man, he 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 seems like a guy that's kind of clicked that the light has turned on. Um, Bob, I guess what what have you seen from him in terms of kind of taking on responsibility? Seems like he's a guy that's kind of understood like the, the whole last year debacle, kind of with the UNC loafing game, has kind of resonated with him. Have you seen a, a difference, a shift in, and not just on the field, but just how he kind of is when he talks to us? I think he's always been a mature guy. Yeah. He's, he's had to learn through some really tough circumstances with his injuries and his career. And but I think he, he knows that he can't have moments like that. And it probably wasn't much more than a few plays against North Carolina, but I think he, he kind of grew up and knew, hey, I can't, I can't do that to myself, to my name. I can't let my teammates down. They're depending on me to be there. And, and with Demarcus Walker gone, you know, who's going to be that veteran leader? He's not a senior, but he knows he's, he's a respected junior. I think guys saw how hard he came back from the knee injury. They've they've seen him work hard in the weight room, in the strength room, eats right. I think he's he's a good mentor for younger defensive ends. They've got a lot of those guys come in like Joshua Kendo. So I think he's he may not be the high end productive guy, but he will be someone who will be a good uh, good mentor for the group, and you know. I, I just I just think he's he's got some good football ahead of him. We'll just have to see. I, I think he said yesterday that, that that group has to get it done yeah. for the defense. I thought that was a really interesting statement to to hear him say that it's kind of on the defensive ends mm-hmm. to kind of make things work for them. Well, there's no one on that defense that's that's more important to replace or to try to I mean, maybe replace isn't the right word, but try to you know kind of supplement production than Demarcus Walker with 16 sacks and set the edge really well, kicked inside, and, and Josh Sweat is kind of the main guy that you look at is that can kind of kind of mimic what what Walker did. Even though they have different body types, he does the same things well, sets the edge, 
Uh, they used him as an interior pass rusher a little bit last year, but Demarcus Walker was so good at that there wasn't really much of a need to uh, to, to take him out of that role. But but remember, Josh Sweat did finish this year with what was it four and a half sacks in the last three games? Um, yeah, four and a half. So so he did kind of start showing those glimpses and I thought that was another thing that he said yesterday was interesting he, he's an insightful guy like I do like talking to him unfortunately I don't talk to him a whole ton it's only been like the third or fourth time but he said you know he kind of just changed philosophically like the way he attacked you know tackles off the edge he's like I just became more of an edge player like I focused on actually getting around the edge instead of going straight ahead and I wonder if that was just kind of more confidence in the knee and being able to kind of Remember, he had surgery last year. Like he he had surgery in the middle of the season. The meniscus. It wasn't that like a week before the UNC game too. It was after Louisville. It was he was so he was out for the USF game. If I'm I'm doing this off the top of my head. I'm trying to think. He was injured right before Louisville. Yeah. There were questions as to whether he would. And he, and he played yeah. and he played and against he, Louisville. That's when he spoke to his father. Yeah, and then so then he had surgery the next week, right? And so that meant USF. So UNC was the first game back, right? I can't remember if it was definitely the first game back. He obviously played in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, can't remember. I'll talk about I can't either. Sorry, this is uh, probably should have prepared to look at that first. I'm still on spring break. Now. <laughs> um, no, that's my fault. I'm getting off on a tangent, which I'm, I'm known to do. Uh, but but I guess my point being is like the guy was a week or two off of you know having surgery on his knee, and you know I think maybe unfairly kind of with the loafing, like it kind of. No, he wasn't right, and it's tough to ask for someone to be mentally in, in that state. But what we did see at the end of the year was kind of the same thing with the whole defense, was confidence and kind of understanding uh, what his role was. And, and that kind of, again, makes me wonder, you know, what his ceiling is. You know, was it just momentum and feeling good about himself last year, or is it actually like a real tangible, like is he going to be a double-digit sack guy? Is he going to be a difference maker? Well, I think the big thing with Sweat is he takes it personal. He did. Like, he wears it on his sleeve. You know, some guys are angry most of the time, mm-hmm. kind of put up a thing. Some guys are kind of dopey where they're not going to say much, so it's tough to get a read. With Josh, he's an intelligent dude. He's an easygoing guy, but he's serious about football. Mm-hmm. You know, he cares a great deal about being a good football player, being a good teammate, representing Florida State in a good manner, both on and off the field. And when he didn't last year, you know, when he played poorly and did what he did against UNC, you could tell it bugged him. I mean, it, it clearly bugged him. Him, I remember talking to him. I believe it was Matthew Thomas after that game, and those two guys were just downright upset with what mm-hmm. happened in that game and the performance they gave, and it bugged them. Mm-hmm. And I think with Josh, he's a guy that that's motivation. He's good at taking that and knowing I don't want to have that feeling ever again. And some guys struggle to figure that out, that they're the ones who ultimately control what they do. Mm-hmm. I think Josh fully understands that. Now that he's healthy – completely has his bearings of what's being asked of him in the defense, has an understanding of what his body's morphed into in the college mm-hmm. workout. I think he's a guy kind of primed to, you know, I don't know if the stats will bear it out, but I think he's primed to be the best player he's been at Florida State without a shadow of a doubt. And I think that's a really good point, Chris, is, is he understands who he is, and I think the staff has kind of understood that he is coming in. Uh, I think one of the knocks that some of the the recruit Knicks kind of had on him was an elite prospect, but but not that that super quick twitch off the edge that you would expect. Uh, well, the birds, I guess pre injury, I guess with the injury, people but, forget how catastrophic that injury was in high school. It was the fact that gross, he even right? played a yeah. year later still blows my mind when I truly and played really well it. a year later yeah. too. <laughs> I mean, you know, guys have knee injuries and they don't come back for two years in the sense of being the player they're capable of being. Josh made an immediate impact a year after a catastrophic leg injury. I, I remember talking to his high school coach back when I was uh, at a different publication and I was doing a story, and, and I asked him, because I, I knew it was a bad injury, but I didn't know what it looked like. I obviously wasn't there, and I asked him, so did you know right away? Oh. Sometimes in the ACL, you don't know. People were and visibly shaking. The, co- the, the coach kind of sniffed, <laughs> he kind of laughed. He's like, oh, yeah, you knew, because it was literally pointing in another day. It was like a 45-degree angle, apparently. So, yeah, the fact that he came back and played. But but I guess, as a pass rusher, like they kind of figured out, like, okay, he's not – this elite get off the ball type of guy, but he's, he's not what he, Brian Burns is for them. Correct. He's not he exactly. And Brian Burns, I think that's what the, the original expectation with but the way his body has grown, the way he's built out, I mean he looks like an Adonis. Like he just he's a well built human being and, and uh is so strong and he was he like two fifty now and I think he has the frame to probably get up to two sixty. He's a really balanced, good defensive end and is gonna be good at a lot of things I yeah. think this year. But I don't know if he's a double digit sack guy. Although he was close this past year, but uh 
the greatest thing about sacks, and Jimbo made the excuse the year they couldn't get any sacks at Sacks World Rated. Right? Like 17 sacks but, in a season. But he did make a great point that year, I remember. He said, some guys don't get sacks, but they create sacks. And I think Josh Sweat's an excellent example of that. Yeah. Josh Sweat may not get to the quarterback this year, but he's going to help facilitate those guys in the front seven or the guy coming off the edge with him to have a better chance of getting yeah, the quarterback. Yeah, d- disruption equals production, I think, is something that a lot of the you know draft, draft gurus like to say. And it's true. You don't have to necessarily get to the quarterback. If you do, that's great. If you force a bad throw or whatnot, that, that's kind of what Florida State, I think, has done in the past. You know, since Brad Line has come in, they've put an emphasis on they don't have to get to the quarterback. They're finding different ways, using Giorgio Newberry to, to be disruptive. Mess uh, the play up. Yeah, exactly. You're just creating chaos with length, and, and that's the one aspect of Florida State's defense, I think, that has made consistent strides in the last couple of years that there's yeah. been no question about. Uh, no, as we're kind of anything else you guys want to go go out about as we're kind of I don't even know how long this podcast is going. I think it's probably well to an hour now at this point. Well, if you're still listening, <laughs> um, and one more thing about Mike Bell, <laughs> I swear I like the guy. Um, no, I mean with football, I think the main thing is it, we're about to hit the dog days. You know, they're back from spring break. They'll probably be engaged this week, but. Next week's kind of like, you know, oh, let's get to that spring game April 8th. It's going to be interesting to see who kind of keeps a consistent effort and if somebody kind of tails off and if we get angry Jimbo. We haven't really seen angry Jimbo yet this year, and we all know it's coming. It's probably going to be the wide receiver's fault, too. I was going to uh, ask about the wide receivers last week and got kind of shut down on it, and I'm just going to keep asking about the yeah. wide receivers Even, now. <laughs> angry Jimbo will come out to play if you keep asking about wide receivers. <laughs> Nooney Murray is going to be wearing 99 next week. God knows what number he's going to be be wearing. Bob, any more takeaways for footballs? I think we're kind of, like you said, we're, Chris said, we're kind of nearing the, the dog days here in the middle part. Is there anything that you think to look forward to? in the next week or so things you want to see guys develop or anything like that as, as you kind of you know, pay attention for the next three or four practices I think just let's keep following the position battles I think we've got some good ones are still unfolding left tackle obviously center um, still looking for some young receivers to emerge beyond Michael Murray and Auden Tate um, running back obviously with with Jaquiz Patrick or Cam Akers it's it's going to be interesting there's a lot of good position battles they they kind of maybe go under the radar national because they're not a quarterback mm-hmm. but there's there's enough to uh, let's see how these next couple of weeks unfold and and who you know who's in who's in good enough shape through all the hot days <laughs> through all the yelling through the scrimmage that's coming up next monday who's who's up to it and who who uh, stands up and stands the tallest and you know like jimbo said red zone who's prepared to be ready to run the ball against that really good defensive line when mm-hmm. when you've got a Cam Makers or Jaquez Patrick looking against the, the number one defensive line, who can get it done? Mm-hmm. And if you can get it done against that defensive line, I think that kind of gives you some confidence as to who can maybe be ready against Alabama in September. Yeah, we're still trying to kind of figure out clarity, I guess, and we'll know, you know, Jimbo will have a better idea and the staff will have a better idea of, of who's who and, and who can contribute in what spots after that, that next Monday after the scrimmage. Uh, like you say, guys still you know trying to get in shape after the ten day layoff. I think one player said out you know during practice or after practice that that uh, they felt like they were smoking cig- cigarettes because they were just running so so much and they were just so winded from ten days. And even Jimbo joked, he's like, yeah, they were supposed to be running and, and conditioning during the uh, the time off. He's like, I don't know if they <laughs> they were though, but he has been consistently pleased with the effort of this team. I think that's one thing that we have seen consistently he's not you know saying anyone's dogging and that that's something that was a focal point in the offseason for them it's something that obviously was a huge defining factor in 2016 uh, so I think if you're looking for progress if something to kind of catch on to a theme that's certainly one thing to that has been noteworthy to me and one thing that we kind of keep uh, looking as we go forward so we'll be back next week probably shooting for around uh, Monday Tuesday we're trying to get in our groove here a little bit uh, next Tuesday I think is pro day does that sound right yeah a week from today so we have pro day coming up. We'll have a couple more, a uh, couple more practices and some information there to report on. Uh, maybe a Leonard Hamilton contract extension. Who knows? Maybe not. A real one this time. <laughs> and we will leave you with that. With uh, Knowles twenty four seven. I'm Brendan Sinone. Thank you, Chris Nee, Bob Ferrante for joining me. Uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.